0: You are listening to the Religica Theo Lab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University.
1: This is Michael Retrice, Director at the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. You're listening to the Religious Theolab at the Center, and today I'm speaking with Rev. Dr. Jostrom Isaac Carithadam, who meets regularly with His Holiness Pope Francis at the Vatican, as Father Josh is Coordinator of Ecology and Creation at the Vatican Dicastery for Promoting Integral Human Development. He'll tell us more about what that is he's also Chair of Philosophy of Science and Director of the Institute of Social and Political Sciences at the Silesian Pontifical University in Rome. His most recent books include The Ten Green Commandments of Laudato Si', that's 2019, The Philosophical Roots of the Ecological Crisis, which we'll talk about, that came out in 2017, and Creation in Crisis, Science, Ethics, and Theology, which arrived in 2014. Today, Father Josh and I are talking about the Vatican Laudato Si action platform that calls universities and communities, people in all walks of life, including Seattle University, to a rich and integrated approach for responding to Pope Francis's call across society for change. We discuss the need for a deep conversion of the heart in each of us with relation to the climate crisis, a change that's necessary for the sake of our shared future for our children, for our students, and for our neighbors. I encourage you to take a listen. What is your position as the coordinator of the sector of ecology and creation at the Vatican Dicastery for promoting integral human development? What does that position entail in your daily activity, from working with universities to local communities? I think a listener would love to know. Thank you, Michael. You know, Dicastry would mean
0: something like a ministry or the U.S. you have, you know, I think secretary or, you know, like, so this would be like cabinet ministers or, you know. And uh, so we have this dicastery, which was created by Pope Francis in 2017, 1st of January, for integral human development, which is, you know, many sectors uh, of which one of this is ecology. We also have economy. We have one section for migration, one section for healthcare, and then peace, security. So whatever is concerned with, inter- and uh, somehow I like to say it's integral, it should be integral human flourishing. Mm. Uh, you know, you know, that's even a more complete word. Like. Mm-hmm. So, and I've been asked to, I coordinate the ecology sector, which as you know, Laudato Si was published in 2013, and then Laudato Si has become our, our leading light, our inspiration. So our sector, and we are like some seven, eight of us in our sector, we try to coordinate the initiatives of Pope Francis, of the entire church, you know, not just the Holy See, but also the local churches. And that was addressed to all people of Goodwill, so we very much partner with other religions and with the civil society, with NGOs, with everyone. And my job would be to coordinate, you know, whatever in the name of the Holy See, the our Dicastery. And the creation care is one of the missions interested to in our Dicastery. Mm-hmm. So I try to coordinate, create partnerships to promote creation care, like you know, yeah, the climate crisis, biodiversity. But as you know, it's also with the cry of the poor, is connected to migration, food security. So in all those
1: areas, we work. Yeah. I imagine with your work, you're, you're traveling, as I know, all around the world. Visiting with local communities, also in international contexts, one of which we'll talk about in a moment. But in that work, as you've noted, in terms of attentiveness to integral ecology for human flourishing, yeah. could you say a little more about the flourishing aspect that is intended for us and that Pope Francis is spending considerable time caring about? Yeah, thank you.
0: Yeah, I think first of all, uh, one thing I've also listening to Pope Francis several times. I think he has really found the connection between how the ecological problems are very much connected to the to human suffering, you know, mm-hmm. what he calls the cry of the poor. And this is integral ecology, like everything is connected, you know. Mm. And I know why he is he himself, as he says, has had an ecological conversion. Like many people used to think, why should church or why should we be concerned about environmental issues? You know. Mm-hmm. And then he says it was when he went to the Amazon and he saw so much of suffering and, and he found how everything is connected how the flourishing of the planet is so essential to the flourishing of human life and Amazon is, you know, everything is so clear. Like, mm-hmm. And that was the more, and he saw the, the indigenous people being deprived of their rights. I think that that was his moment of ecological conversion. Mm-hmm. And so he has seen that for integral human flourishing, we need to begin with, we need to have a, a, a common home, which is in, in, in good stage, like, mm-hmm. And as, as theologian, I always think of you know uh, the book of Genesis. It's interesting, like I mean, humanity and even the other creatures. We come only on the very last day, like on the sixth mm-hmm. day, like now. God. At first first just create this garden, you know, sun and moon. It's done in a very mythical way, but using the cosmology of the time. But the logic is is beautiful. Like the sun and moon light, and, you know, all mm-hmm. those are created and water and land is separated from the waters, and then the garden is created. And as we know, the way the history of the planet, this world happened. I mean, Earth is 4.5 to billion years old, and life begins around 3.9 billion years old. And but then real biodiversity flourishing happened around 545 million years ago Like, mm-hmm. and uh, when all this reached sort of a peak or you know the maximum or the optimal situation we find humanity entering like you know, and uh, we homo sapiens sapiens just 200,000 years ago like you know is something like what happened in the narration of the genesis when the garden is ready Adam and Eve are brought in to live in that you know, and uh, it always struck me also genesis 215 when uh, what I call the our first job description Mm-hmm. Is to cultivate and c- take care of this garden. So the first condition for human flourishing is we have a livable home, like you now. And the second would be like we live as a common family. In a family, we all flourish together. And flourishing is at all levels, even you know, with biodiversity. If all this we flourish together, Where the climate is important, ecosystems are important, we have you know clean air, you know, all of your water in the same way for humanity, also. That, like in a family, like you know, yeah. we, we won't be happy if I flourish and my my brother or my brother or my sister is suffering, you know, is, is hungry, then I won't be even able to eat like, literally. Like, you know, so and I think that's again for Francis has seen that. So, the integral ecology, the beauty is he, he connects all this, you know. I, I was very impressed. I was in Glasgow
1: mm-hmm. at COP26 there.
0: Mm-hmm. And COP26, and we had a, you know, a meeting with the IPCC head, you know, and with Cardinal Paroline and uh, just three of us. And towards the end of the meeting, the IPCC head, president, he said, We uh, said, yeah, I'm so appreciative of Laudato Si. And he said, for his integral ecological vision, he said, many have spoken about ecology in the last 40, 50 years or so. Many have taken a systemic approach. Pope Francis is not the first one. But he said, Pope well, Francis is the first one who connects both. Mm. integral approach and ecological vision like you know so i think that is the very much the uniqueness of Laudat, and you know hearing it from a from the head of
1: the ipcc was humbling like you know? yeah that's that's extraordinary really an affirmation of the of the work and to your point also to the points you just made you know it's really yeah. remarkable when we think isn't it that biodiversity on the planet the last 45 million years this sense of of a common family and a, a shared responsibility in the great expanse chronologically of the cosmos, that's just a precious small amount of time. And yet in Laudato Si, and I want to encourage the listener to go and, and find that document. It's free. It's online. You can download it at any time. Laudato Si, which came out in 2015. His Holiness Pope Francis is really, I think, clarifying, as you've identified, what are moral and spiritual responsibilities are. And I'm reminded that just before the COP26 uh, event or convening this last fall of 2021, on October 4th, he he issued a plea to protect the environment and, and warning that future generations will never forgive us if we miss the opportunity to protect our common home in the way you're discussing there. Is Pope Francis, do you think, seeing this ecological crisis as a deeper spiritual crisis first? And if so, when we look at the next five to 10 years ahead, what is our work, both spiritually and ecologically, to respond to that crisis? Thank you.
0: You uh, know, this again, I would say the various layers of the ecological crisis. One is it's a physical problem, and we are thankful to the scientific community mm-hmm. for highlighting it and giving us excellent, and thanks to them very consistently, in spite of sometimes being like their lives have been made diff- difficult in many places, but they have kept on, and, and we are so grateful to them. And it's an ethical, moral problem because the poor are disproportionately suffering. So it's very much a cry of the poor. But I think that a third level is going deeper. It is a spiritual problem. Eh? Mm-hmm. You know, right at the beginning, the second paragraph for Francis says, the violence present in our hearts is manifested in the degradation of the soil, mm. of the air, of the water outside, like, you know. So there is a close connection. And towards the end of Laudato Si, 217, Pope Francis quotes his predecessor, Pope Benedict. And I remember literally the, the day Pope Benedict became Pope, 2005, I was in the UK, I was a student. And I remember, you know, watching, uh, seeing that mass on the television. And during the homily, Pope Benedict made a very, very beautiful statement. also very touching. He said, the external deserts are expanding. Mm-hmm. because the internal deserts have become so vast, like, you okay. know. And Pope Francis quotes that phrase in, in the in Laudato Si, like, you know. So that is the reason, like, I mean, we need to work at various levels, but until we reach the roots, the spiritual roots, and it's also very much the Old Testament. We have Prophet Hosea, who at one moment, he writes that the fish is dying in our rivers, the rivers have become polluted, because Israel has sinned. Israel has fallen to idolatry, but also the poor are being oppressed and the widows are being neglected, you know. So sometimes that worries me, but then I really realize we need to cut down carbon emissions, so important. We need to recycle, but probably it's not sufficient. We need an integral transformation, like, you otherwise... And if I might also connect, you know, injustice is very much connected to the infertility of the land. And again, you know, going back to Genesis, is chapter 3, as they said, the garden has been created where life is flourishing. Then sin begins to creep in. First Adam and Eve, they shed their responsibility to cultivate this garden. But especially when Cain kills his own brother Abel, and innocent blood is shed, you know, and the earth drinks that innocent blood. And Genesis 3:17, I think that says the garden has become a desert, only thistles and thorns will grow. It's no more garden, it's just wild, like you know, in, you know just the human sin, innocent blood being shed, and uh, the land is soaked with this blood, and, and the land becomes infertile, like you know, it doesn't produce anymore, like it becomes wild, like. So there's a very deep connection, like, you know, so unless we also work at that level, that's where religious communities can do a lot, like, you know, so on the 4th of October and we have also very much involved, you know, we prepared over an year this meeting for several reasons. One is because faith communities are, we are a large force. And I think of Eid from UNEP, from the United, you know, Environment Programme in Nairobi, but also many others mm-hmm. who are realizing that, as everyone says, we are like 83% of humanity, you know, belonging to one religious tradition or another, like, you know, so we are a big force. But second thing is mm-hmm. we have so many, of so much of resources in our tradition. And the third thing is just what I mentioned, that unless we address the spiritual roots, like, you know, probably we won't be able to really meet the challenge. Like, you know, but I don't want to ex- only absolutize that. We need to work at all levels, you know, the physical,
1: moral, justice element of so important, but also the spiritual. Now, I hear that in your words and following your work and the way in which you are Clearly working at numerous levels at once in terms of care for the most marginalized for the poor, thinking of the moral implications, the spiritual, yeah. the physical, and ecological on the planet, and balancing all of that, and something else you've also mentioned with this narrative of Cain and Abel i mean it's it's not a rhetorical question, is it when God asks, "Where is your brother? His blood is crying to me from the ground and suggesting we have a moral responsibility, all of us, one to the other, especially where there is such a disequilibrium in the world for access from one country or one region to another that really can impact the kind of flourishing that you're talking about. It reminds me that UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres noted right before COP26 that this was another thundering wake-up call referring to the scientific report on climate change that had just come out. And he notes at that time that the emissions gap aligned with what we're talking about here is a result of a leadership gap. He said at the launch of that study, I think in terms of leadership gap, you might have something also to say about the moral leadership as a response to the non rhetorical inquiry from the divine. Where's your brother? Where's your sibling? Where's your responsibility? Are we taking that seriously enough? What needs to change what do you see as particularly perilous, or that we need to be attentive to? I mean, now in the next three to five years. And thank you, thank you. And
0: yeah, one of you know Cain and Abel keeps resonating within me. And mm-hmm. I was I was just remembering when God asks, "Where is your brother?" And Cain very arrogantly says, "Am I the keeper mm-hmm. of my brother?" And uh, in Hebrew, the you know the word keeping is was already used in the second chapter when God asked Adam and Eve to keep the garden. And they didn't keep the garden. Interesting. And then we have the, you know, Cain, their son, not keeping his brother. Mm -hmm. And I think both are very much connected, you know, keeping the garden, caring for the garden, and caring for one another. There's an intimate link, like, you know. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, there is moral leadership, and Antonio Guterres, we also appreciate him a lot. And and we see that he's very much the same wavelength with Pope Francis. And there is very good chemistry between them, between Antonio Guterres and, and, and Pope Francis. And moral leadership is, first of all, speaking out. You know, I think we need to be prophetic. And Kuteris does it at the political level. And Pope Francis does it at all levels possible. No? We need to stand up for our brother. And today, especially those who are most, those who are well-off, well, they don't need, they, they're okay. It's the migrants or the indigenous communities or children on the street or women who are abused. And also, other species, you know, they have no voice at all. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. so that's the place where we need to really get back to our keeping, our vocation to keep. And I don't know if I'm speaking so too much as a priest, but then, you know, I always think, and for Francis, I'm sure he's inspired by the end of. Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46, where it speaks of the last judgment, the final exam that all of us are to go through. When the questions that, you know, as for us Christians that we believe that Jesus is going to ask, and Jesus said this as in a parable, is uh, I was hungry, I was thirsty, I was naked, I was a stranger, I was sick, I was in prison. And you came to visit me or you fed me, you took care of me or you didn't, you know, that you were the keeper of your brother. Just that, you know. That that's the only question we will be asked. And if I might also add, that's what really. it's was again what gives us hope, because ultimately we are empathetic. Even recently, and it's come. You know, I see every now and a study comes out with Darwin. We thought, you know, evolution is the survival of the fittest, and right, that is right now that's very much disproved. Like they say, what, why Homo? You know, there were many religious Homo erectus, and you know, many others. They say why Homo sapiens sapiens survived. They say Homo neanderthalensis was much smarter than us, you know, Mm -hmm. in in terms of meeting adverse climate situations or many other, even technically they had advanced instruments for those times, like, you know. But Homo sapiens sapiens, you know, we are the only ones that survived. And today we are realizing this because we have the capacity for empathy when someone is, being left behind or is and uh, the whole community and, and that preserves the community like it's not the survival fit is going ahead then you know one day he or she will perish we preserve the community And we are seeing it. I mean, that's what what really gives us hope. I remember also in Glasgow elsewhere, civil society marching on the street and women and faith leaders and and, uh, grandparents and children. Because, you know, the suffering of people in Bangladesh becomes our suffering. And one theme which was heard very loud at this COP was climate justice. In Glasgow, that was resonating very loudly. Like, you know, so if my old brother or sister in Congo or in Ghana is not safe, I am not safe. Like. Mm. And the other dimension is, unfortunately, being realistic, you know, the, the crisis is not caused by them. In Africa, it again came up during the COP. There are more than one billion people, but their emissions are just four per cent mm. And per capita is even even so little. We would always like to stress the positive dimension, like we are empathetic mm-hmm. beings and let's hope that and we are supposed to be Homo sapiens, sapiens, you know, doubly wise, that you we might, we might just talk at the abyss and save not only really the planet common home, but also our common human family. I always like to stress the family is also interspecies. God created this. And then we have been given the special responsibility to keep all this in the the home, but also our own brothers and sisters, but also other other animals that really
1: hope we will succeed. One of the things I'm reminded of when we talk about maybe an emotional or empathy IQ that's so essential to meeting the crises of our moment that back once more to the story of Cain and Abel, I think it's four times that God inquires about the kind of interior of Cain's heart in response to his brother in each of those four episodes until the very last, as you identify, Cain remains silent. That we have this capacity for empathy, but these historic traditions where we have sacred texts also remind us at times where we seem to be entrenched in our own kind of self-concern for survival. I hear you saying our future is going to depend on the survivability of all of us, even empathy, and especially for those we don't know, but they're not abstract humanity. They are our siblings, and somehow we have to imagine, imagine that space. I want to also point to your text, the philosophical roots of the ecological crisis, which came out in 2017. You've committed a significant amount of of your own time into understanding the kind of philosophical roots which is especially interesting in light of what you're also saying with regard to empathy. So you have an understanding in many ways of how we got here philosophically, that the suppositions that inform, let's say, the Industrial Revolution or a kind of a penchant for wealth acquisition to the exclusion of the neighbor, like those are philosophically ingrained. As you think of that work, are there two or three aspects across the time of your study where you thought, now here is where we see empathy that does look hopeful that does look promising across the history, across those philosophical traditions, these two or three parts of who we are of our humanity always appears to show up in terms of how we care for each other. If you see that, what would those be for the listener to contemplate with you? Yeah.
0: Thank you. Thank you I me. Say three things. One is. I've been in this area nearly 20-25 years and it all began when I was working at the missions and I saw in an area people were committing suicide, the farmers, Mm. you know, because of drought. So that was my moment of ecological conversion. Mm. Then I began my PhD and but also as a philosopher I was always impressed by what Albert Einstein used to say that we cannot solve a problem with the same mentality that created it in the first place. Like, you know, and I think our struggle is that we are trying to become carbon neutral, but the mentality, the paradigm, Thomas Kuhn's in expression. And paradigm is conglomeration of factors in you know cultural, spiritual, economic, scientific, all this and that's what we call cultural paradigm. At one moment I realized that so unless we go to the roots of that paradigm, we can really bring about change. So that's what kept me too. It was while doing a, a, a seminar on Heidegger. Oh, fascinating. Yeah, like, you know, and Heidegger says, with Descartes, a thing is only a thing and nothing more. Because in the medieval times, or even in, uh, Aristotle spoke of talos, and, you know, it's a much richer way of looking at a, a thing. Like, you know, it's made by somebody, but in view of something, there's an agent. The matter of it but with modernity it's just you know that's I think what gave us to modern science especially mm-hmm. the modern which has become very extractive economy like we just see nature as this inert matter like you know mm-hmm. so this I began then I started reading Descartes and and modernity as a whole bacon and I thought bacon Carolyn Merchant has done a great study on bacon though I really thought the real Culprit, or you know, like, in the sense of we you know it's anachronism, but then one who really brought about the changes, it's not not for simple reasons. Descartes is called the father of modern philosophy. Like, you now he gave a new metaphysics, a new philosophical vision. I would say with three pillars one is you are the center, you know, cogitans, anthropocentrism, and we are still suffering from that individualism and uh, capitalistic economy. Or I am the center of the world, and you know, so. Don't worry about the rest. It's it's anthropocentrism and all the other creatures, but also the Darwin's, you know, the the survival of the fittest. The second is this separation. Or even before separation, nature we see as inert, you know, as no more. shadows, is no more alive or indigenous. Even in medieval times, nature was alive with God's spirit or indigenous communities the spirit of the tree or the river, all that. But with the modernity, nature falls silent. It's just stress extends, you know, mathematically measurable, which is important. Mm. But only that, that's the problem. We just reduce it to that. No other cats so, or uh, qualities, only quantity counts. And nature becomes inert matter, you know, for you to exploit or do whatever you want. Mm. Then mm. the metaphysical division, between which, which is an ontological metaphysical, is totally other-like. And there I thought the roots of our problem. So the positive side is we need a relational vision, a relational mm-hmm. metaphor, which again we have like, you know, so modernity was sort of a detour. And even from the faith perspective, I always think of Trinity. You know, our conception of God is, I mean, what Jesus revealed is, is, very original. It's not individualistic conception. Mm-hmm. It is, even what process, philosophy is, is a process, but it's again, is very much a relational, it is father son and the holy spirit of course we use images of the father son and the holy spirit but then they were there together like keeping their individual autonomy or individuality but they are together one does not exist without the other that's in the in the christian tradition we have in buddhism samutpada that again everything is connected so almost most philosophically or in in hinduism this advaita the non duality Everything is connected, so I think we need to recover this relational vision. And that's again what Laudato Si does so beautifully—that you know everything is connected, that we are connected. And Pope Francis also offered us fratelli tutti, reminding us that we are a common family. So we have resources in the past, but we also have the challenges of today can be met by regaining this. New, but it's, it's very ancient. But reproposing it for our times, you know, the communitarian thing. At the same time, allow me to be very realistic. I said we are Homo sapiens sapiens, and we are free. You know, we have human liberty. So there's always the choice, and it always, as a philosopher, one, one. We think of the the Auschwitz or the Holocaust, even where God was hands on us, God up to up to Auschwitz, or you know, like where it's up to us to choose. God can help bless our journey, but then God respects our liberty. Mm -hmm. So we can save the planet, but we can also go and become more egoistic, and you know, and also go on that path. Mm-hmm. And as you know, some, I mean, some people are doing it. I mean, for profit. I don't bother about my brother, or sister who suffers, or mm-hmm. typhoons, or you know, I don't bother. You know, it's just my profit. Maybe my little country, or and we saw it also, unfortunately, also in, in Glasgow. Like you know, and mm-hmm. I remember the the pathetic discourse, in the, the eyes of those from the island states. They said when they realized one point five. We will reach 2.0. And they were saying, you know, the I remember it was Maldives, the woman minister, she said, For us, the difference between 1.5 and 2 is our death sentence. Yeah,
1: that's the difference.
0: Yeah, like I could see their the pain, like, you know, that uh, where um, countries said, No, our interests are paramount and, you know, mm-hmm. we don't compromise. But unless we act together, like, no one is going to be saved. That's again, maybe using our wisdom, like, mm-hmm. we are in it together. Like, you know, either we sink together or we save ourselves together so that we hope that wisdom will prevail and I tend to be optimistic. Because, mm-hmm. you know, also, we have to be optimistic. I mean, the other one is collective suicide. like you know? So when we mm-hmm. think of our responsibility towards our own poor brothers and sisters around the world, but also future generations, and that argument, and uh, I also see, also working at the Vatican, but what really changed the narrative is when children came onto the street. And you know, I used to be discouraged. I said, you know, what's happening? Yeah. Scientifically, you know, what's this? And, you know, everyone is not really, only blah, 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 talking. It's only when children came onto the streets and said you are stealing yeah. our future and you know that brought grandparents onto the into together mm-hmm. that brought that brought everyone together that's again element of hope like you know because again i'm sorry for speaking as a priest but then you know after the cough was over we came back to the vatican and on the 14th of november world day of the poor Poor Francis launched the Laudato Si action platform. And we are seeing from around the world, you know, it's women, children, local communities are acting. And I think that's how the Holy Spirit is saying, okay. Because as I I want to insist on that, we need politicians. We need 70% of change will come when policies change, when legislations change. So we need to put pressure on our politicians. But to put pressure on them, we need a bottom up. People's movement, you know, and then this happening, we see children and you know so many people so generously coming forward. So, and I was just going back to the old one, you know, that, that yeah, it's our responsibility. You know, it's a liberty element, like you know, and as a scientist, the realism sometimes takes. Because even the one point five degrees, and I remember, one degree was forecast for two thousand twenty-five by the IPCs in nineteen ninety-two. I think you know, you know, IPCC reports are very good, but they are conservative because you need to get Saudi Arabia and everyone on board, you know. So they, they, many things get watered down, and they reached to one degree almost ten years ahead.
1: Well, this is one thing I want to ask you. I want to make sure the listener also captured the really refined points you were making about. Perhaps what happens to us philosophically, if in the history of the tradition, as you've identified with the emphasis on the my own ego and the protection of myself and a sense of separation from nature. So every object around me doesn't really have a a purpose towards something that's intended to be shared. It just it's meant to be used. It can be used as anything without any kind of moral responsibility, let's say. And over time, that can also mean using others. So a sense of consumption in the world just grows. I become my own consumed object. I can consume other objects. I can treat other human beings as objects to be consumed. And over time, there's this kind of mutual diminishment you're really talking about, I think, and recovering a sense of mutual belonging and a sense of empathy which would refuse, I think, that kind of objectification of others and of ourselves. That empathy is always looking for purpose. It's looking for deeper connection in the way that you've described. And then you've mentioned the C action platform, which strikes me as a significant effort to actually rewrite some of the very things you identify that it really places its strengths on you know, we are going to be connected because integral ecology and human flourishing does require that we don't see ourselves as the center of the universe individually, that my neighbor is meaningful and that they have their own internal purpose outside of my desire to objectify them. And I have to be attentive to that morally. I have to respect that. Having said that, if I'm right about that, if I've got some of that correct what do you see or what are you hopeful about in terms of the ladato c action platform also inclusive i should say of universities that have stepped forward in responses to that platform what is that platform and and why do you think there's such a healthy response what are you hoping for ultimately yeah thank you michael
0: and if i might just also comment on the great analysis he made no Great. And this is the throwaway culture, like, you know, not only of things, but also migrants or, you know, we don't value the other person. Probably we value them in terms of their economic worth or, you know, and and that's again a very material evaluation of people. Mm -hmm. It's again, as Pope Francis says, we need to overcome that culture. It's all in this context that he proposed the Laudato Si Action Platform. Mm -hmm. As you said, Laudato Si was published in 2015, an encyclical, that's the highest form of teaching, from the part of the Pope, and hardly five years after that, he announced a special Laudato Si' anniversary year. And for Francis, on words where that the cry of the earth and the cry of the poor have got even louder and more painful, so we need to get back to Laudato Si'. Mm-hmm. At the end of that the Laudato Si' year, Pope Francis himself launched the Laudato Si' action platform. Now, if I might say three things about it. the why of it is. Time is running out, and I can also confess that we began working nearly three years ago when a group of scientists came to the Vatican, that is before the 1.5 degree centigrade came out Mm -hmm. of the IPCC. I don't know for the help of our audience. We keep on saying 1.5 when I find it very useful when I tell the students and somebody asks me, what is the problem with two or three? Then I, I tell them, you know, imagine we are in an interglacial epoch, last 10, 12,000 years. And during the entire last 12,000 years, Earth's average temperature did not vary by more than one degree all this 12,000 years or so. Like, that's when human civilization was born, agriculture was created, you know, this we began to flourish. Like, no? And from 1850 up to today, there were temperatures risen by 1.1 degrees centigrade, and we are seeing the impacts around the world. Mm-hmm. And 1.5 degrees centigrade means it's going to
1: be 50% worse then today 50% worse than what we're already seeing.
0: Already seeing like mm-hmm. but that is the the minimum we can, you know, we can afford to limit, like, because first of all, see what to remain studies for hundred years and there are so many factors. So it, it is already bad. But the scientists told us, okay, one point five, that's the catastrophic limit. Mm-hmm. As you know, even with the
1: Glasgow, with all the promises, we are going to reach 2.4. Imagine yeah. so that you know. is for the listener, that is a devastating number, right? A two point yeah. four. Yeah. What does that mean? For some of the things we're talking about, life gets incredibly difficult at 2.4.
0: Yeah, think of the Arctic, for example, you know, the Greenland is melting. <laughs> Unfortunately, you know, last summer for the first time it rained in the, on the Greenland. Mm-hmm. And a couple of days ago, a study came out saying that in the month, on the 20th of June, Siberia, one area reached 38 degrees centigrade, you mm-hmm. know, which is 30 or 40. Miles, it's summer warms
1: up a bit, but 38 degrees centigrade. You know? Incomprehensible. Yeah, 100 degrees Fahrenheit. We're talking about significant, (laughs) formerly unknown, right, temperature lifts. Yeah, and also the latest IPCC report said of this August,
0: if the Greenland were to melt, sea level rise around the world, is something like 7.2 meters, imagine and if it is happens, if mm-hmm. we can remain within 1.5 degrees centigrade, that will happen over thousands of years. So we can adapt to an extent. Like, that. Mm-hmm. But if we just cross two, that's going to be within centuries or even unpredictable. Like, that. Mm-hmm. So the, I mean, I sometimes feel sorry, like we don't realize the, the really the big risk we are taking. Like, I mean, we cannot afford to take a risk. We mm-hmm. won't do it without our home or in you know, such a danger. But mm-hmm. as uh, our common home, we are taking this. So this was the urgency that prompted us. When the scientists, they met with poor Francis, then they came to us Then we said we need to start acting. The second thing is we said we need an integral approach. I already spoke about it. So we need to bring everyone together. So it meant two things. First, that we need to bring everyone together. So we said we need to involve families parishes, dioceses, schools, universities. We thought of seven sectors. So third will be uh, school you know, parishes, dioceses, uh, families, parish, dioceses, schools, and universities. Fourth is hospitals and healthcare centers. Fifth is the world of economy, business, farms, labor movements, all that. Uh, sixth, would be groups, movements, organizations, and seventh would be religious orders. And, you know, the Jesuits, you know, very familiar, uh, you know, just a few days ago, the Jesuit father general said the entire Jesuit family is going to embrace the love Si action platform. Mm. And the university is part of that, like, you know, so involving all the partners. And the second thing about integral ecological vision is, is not just carbon neutrality. So we propose like the sustainable development goals. We propose seven Laudato si goals. It's all on the website, you know, cry of the earth. So renewable energy, water, biodiversity, all that. Then cry of the poor, that we keep the poor at the center. The most vulnerable could be minorities, could be migrants, could be women trafficked or you know, it changes according to, you know, in various contexts. Then we change the economic paradigm at the macro level. Then we change the micro level, my own lifestyles, Mm -hmm. then education, spirituality, both are important, you know, and this again, university is, you know, such a a crucial role. Mm -hmm. And the seventh thing we purposely said, all this we do as a community. We Just want to break away from this individualistic because we've at one stage, and there have been many, stage, even oil companies were using that strategy like you can change the world, that you know, you are the same, and the world has not changed. You know, they're yeah. saying, Let's change the paradigm. You're saying, So, we are asking families to join, parishes to join, schools to join, and religious orders to join, but always as a community. So, seven Laudato Si goals and seven years. You know, we are saying, In seven years, become a Laudato Si university. As mm-hmm. theater university is going to be come mm-hmm. that is again a biblical number seven is the number of fullness and the jubilee concept all that and what really gives us hope is the two things first is the vision that poor francis gave us he said okay make it an, an exponential journey like so this year we are the getting trying to get as many people enrolled and next year we'll invite a new group so if you had say two thousand schools this year and we will have thousands as people are getting enrolled. Next year we want to have at least four thousand who will do their seven years journey. Twenty twenty three, the double of that, eight thousand, then sixteen thousand. So in few years we really get uh, what we call the critical mass, and that is the element of hope we see. Like you now, is that it was based on a Harvard study, but many others have studied that. Came up, they said uh, any change is possible when a critical mass is reached. And the good news is that the critical mass is not a big number. They say if you're 3.5% of a group, we have the critical mass for change which can trigger change, you know. That's how the Berlin Wall came down, a very classical example, very recent. And what Nelson Mandela or Martin Luther King or Mahatma Gandhi, you know? And we think, sorry for, you know, saying from for the Vatican, for Francis, that Pope Francis is probably that charismatic leader for today who can, because people don't change because of ideas or facts of numbers. People change because
1: there is a the charismatic leader who can inspire a, a movement, you know. That's right. And it is inspiration to hear what you're you're saying as well. We may be on our on route to 2.4 degrees Celsius, but you're also noting it takes 3.5 percent really of portion of the population to emit that kind of change. And the change that you're calling for in Laudato Si that we're seeing that we're discussing in terms of integral human flourishing really is is the paradigmatic shift of a conversion of the heart. Yeah. So it starts perhaps with each of us in community, a sense that I have a role to play, whether that's in a university or in my family or in a community or with my neighbor, and that that role is not to be diminished in any way, shape, or form because it has the capacity truly to participate in that kind of conversion. That sounds, as you're speaking to it, I so appreciate you speaking both as a professor, a scientist, and as a priest, because that conversion of heart should cross every aspect of our lives, shouldn't it? Very true, Michael.
0: And, and we are also trying to make it as inclusive as possible. Like, you know, because that's, again, another secret or, you know, like, so we have, I said all the seven sectors, but we are also working, trying, working with other churches. So mm-hmm. you want to make it ecumenical. Even mm-hmm. this morning, I was talking to somebody, somebody from the Anglican church, you know, so then also we want to make it inter-religious, the Parliament of Religions and others. So together we might we should be able to make this three point five but again, therefore the society to change we need between twenty one to twenty four percent that we hope to get within a decade or so like you now. So once the critical mass is reached, change is triggered and it happens, then we need to get the societal transformation and all that we need to do it Within a decade, you know, and the optimistic thing is, and as you said, I think by now people are realizing that we need to do something, you know, there's some type of despair. What can I do? China is doing this or Russia is doing this or, you know, or well, the world is after to consume. But, you know, I can make a difference. You know, I think always think of my cherries of Calcutta used to say, yeah, what I do is just a drop in the ocean. But, you know, in the end, the ocean is just made up of, you know, drops you know? and you can see the amount of good that, you know, her sisters are doing around the world. And we are literally, even you said about the universities, we have like over 100 partners just leading the university sector. And I see them as a very pivotal, that is a very pivotal contribution. First of all, because universities can usher in this paradigm change. They create culture and, you know, so they can really offer a new metaphysics of, you know, of working together, but also this holistic relational vision. Second, because... Universities are forming future leaders or they're going to become managers or, you know, all fields of life. Like them. Mm-hmm. So I am very I'm delighted to see so many universities joining, remaining in the U.S. Some time ago, the California, all the 24 dioceses voted unanimously. Remarkable. To join the, Law the City Action Platform. Mm-hmm. This morning, I got in the office from the Washington Archdiocese. You know, they have embraced the seven and a beautiful booklet in English and Spanish. Mm-hmm. With all the seven Laudato Si goals, they're saying what can be done. And I remember I didn't have time to read through the whole booklet. One moment, I, one place I saw they said the number of schools buying renewable energy has risen from two to ninety-one in just a few months' time. Like, oh, so on. which means change is possible. From two to ninety-one, you know. I don't yeah. know. It's almost what's uh, such a huge change, like you know. And they have made plans for the whole diocese. Responding to the seven Laudato si goals in seven years, I know the diocese of Chicago is doing it, and the Catholic Climate Covenant in the U.S. is our sort of hub leading the whole process. And the, the Jesuits, the Father General came out with a statement inviting all the Jesuits to become uh, Laudato Si' communities, and it's enough that we join together, and you know, and, and we can make things change happen.
1: I want to encourage the listener. To follow the lead here, read Laudato C, assess Laudato C action platform. You can find this online. We'll provide those links also through the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement. And I hope, Father Josh, thank you so much for this time. I hope that we can follow up in a year and have a further assessment of how is that action platform continued to mature and what do you see as the next specific steps for transformation that all of us can participate in. I want to thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Michael, for making this
0: message to reach as many people as possible. And also, let me thank you also in the name of Paul Francis for doing this. You know? Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to all our listeners. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Religica Lab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. To learn more about the center's work and for resources to be used in local communities, visit us at seattleu.edu slash the center.